Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 21. It is it's a little bit long of a passage, um, but it's one story, and so I want to cover the whole thing at once. And we've been, for the last several weeks, we've been listening to what the Holy Spirit has, has to teach us from the story of Elijah, who was a prophet of the Lord. But this story does not come in the book of Elijah. It does not come in the book of the prophets. It comes in the book of Kings. And this book follows the history of the kings. The focus on Elijah and Elisha are something of an exception in these books. The truth is that This is not a story of kings or prophets so much, but about God. Each passage teaches us through various stories what God is like, the way he was in the past, and he is the same. So when we see the prophets in this story, it's not so much to tell us about prophets, but about God's word coming into our lives. King Ahab who was king here, was the worst king yet, and that's why the focus on Elijah here is so important. It reminds us that God does not overlook corruption. When it seems like there is corruption in the government, when the poor, the needy are tread down, we wonder, where is God at this time? We see here again and again that God is still there. He has not overlooked anything. He has not forgotten. He has not gone away on a journey. He is active and sovereign, and he holds even the kings of the earth accountable for their actions. That's the main thing we will see here in this chapter, that God is the great judge of the earth, and he will not let evil go unpunished, even when it seems that the bad guys have gotten away with it. But as we will also see, this chapter has something of a surprise ending. You might not like it completely, but this is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, help us to grow to know you more, and in that way also know ourselves more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab king of Samaria. And after this Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it's near my house. I'll give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, 
I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. As it was written in the letters that she had sent to them, they proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He's dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, and like the son of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel the Lord also said, The dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house.
This is God's Word. Now, we passed over chapter 20, which is a fascinating chapter in itself, but doesn't mention Elijah, and it's it's 43 verses long. I'll summarize it very quickly. Ahab, as evil as he is, is still the king of God's people. And the king of Aram, with a much larger army, went to war against God's people. His strategy was rather simple. He thought that God was a God of the hills, a God of the mountains, and not of the plains or the valleys. So he would just fight in the valleys. And this king was punished for his bad theology. And he was captured, and he lost 127,000 of his soldiers in the battle. It's a mistake that's arrogant and foolish, but we make it too whenever we believe there's some area, some valley, some plain in our life that God is not sovereign over. It is common, and the king of Aram was taught a lesson that day. And then there's an unusual story at the end of that chapter. King Ahab sets the king of Aram free, even though he was supposed to execute him and to enact God's justice by putting him to death. So God sent another prophet, a nameless prophet, to Ahab with this message. You were not supposed to let him live, so now you will die in his place. So two of the things that chapter 20 teaches us about God is first, that he is everywhere, that he is God everywhere. There is no place outside of his domain hills or valleys. Secondly, that God is very serious about justice. And those two things, that God sees everything, that he's God everywhere, and that he's very serious about justice, make Ahab's actions in chapter 21, our chapter, look all the more foolish. Because God is the God of the hills and the valleys. He's everywhere. Does Ahab Think that God will not see sin done in secret? And God is a God who is serious about justice. Does King Ahab think that God will not punish injustice shown to the weak? But this is the point of our chapter, and it's a point that should strike fear into the hearts of all the wicked, no matter what position you are, how untouchable you may feel. God rules over the most powerful kings of the earth. He hates pride. He hates injustice. He sees all sin. No matter how cleverly, how carefully, how successfully you think you might have hidden it, God sees it all. And he consistently takes the side of the oppressed. Let's look at this more closely. Verse 1. It says, now it came about after these things, that is, after God's great deliverance of Israel, after he had so clearly demonstrated that he is a God of justice, after those things, Ahab is walking along in his fancy palace in Jezreel. Now, keep in mind, Ahab is usually in Samaria, not Jezreel. This is his second home. This is his vacation home. And 
Ahab is thinking about making some expansions to his second home. And he thinks, you know what? That field right there would be perfect for a vegetable garden. The one problem with it, though, is that it doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Naboth. Naboth, the Jezreelite. This is Jezreel. So this is not Naboth's second home. This is his home. This is where his parents lived, where his grandparents lived, his great-grandparents lived. He calls it the inheritance of my fathers. So this is where he's from. And it means a lot more to him than just a nice place for an extra vegetable garden for your vacation home. Now, Ahab is a bad king. He's a terrible king, but at least he offers Naboth a fair price. Now, what happens next is a little bit foreign for us Gentiles because land in Israel was not meant to be sold permanently. It was not just land. It was promised land. It was God's land, and everybody else was sojourners on it. He divided it up among the, the tribes, and they were there was not an absolute prohibition of selling it because you could sell if you needed to. But in the end, at the year of Jubilee, it would go revert back to your tribe. It was supposed to be with you. So it wasn't something that you just sold when prices were up. Leviticus 25, 23 says, The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. For you are but aliens and sojourners with me. And Numbers 36, 7, Thus, no inheritance of the sons of Israel shall be transferred from tribe to tribe, for the sons of Israel shall each hold to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. Not even the king was allowed to do this. Deuteronomy 17 said that kings were to always keep the law in mind. They were actually commanded to write down the law of God themselves by hand. I wonder how long that would take today. They would never do anything else but write the law. But Deuteronomy 17.20 tells us why. That his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen in order that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom in the midst of Israel. So that is the principle very clearly stated. If you take away the rights of your countrymen, God might take away your kingdom. Now, I doubt King Ahab paid much attention to God's law, but it was tradition by this time. Naboth may have known this. He didn't want to sell his land. Clearly, it wasn't just land to him. He doesn't, doesn't say, no, I will not sell you my land, my vineyard. He says, I will not sell you the inheritance of my fathers. This is not the way Ahab quotes it to Jezebel later on. He misquotes him. And says, he, he said he would not give me his land. But Naboth is careful to, to view the land the way God calls him to view it, as the inheritance of his father. It was, it was his inheritance given to him by God. And he wasn't to, to, to part with it simply for a little money or for a better vineyard. He says no. So Ahab goes back to his palace to pout like a, like a child. He lays there on his bed, facing the wall, refusing to eat, the king of Israel. It's, it's pathetic, sullen and vexed. King David 
wasn't so dramatic, but doesn't it remind us a little bit of his sin with Bathsheba? He looked over his neighbor's house, one of his mighty men's wife, and he covets her. That coveting turns into lying and murder, stealing, and his kingdom almost, he almost loses it all because of it. Except for God's mercy and his repentance, uh, David would have lost everything. So Ahab, Ahab goes back, he pouts, he's coveting, just a heart sin at first, but a seed. And sin, sin, there is no sin that you can keep like a little pet, that you can keep it in bounds. The end of sin is death. It will keep growing and growing if you don't repent of it until it absolutely rips apart everything you have and destroys you. And this is where it's starting with Ahab. Now, when Jezebel hears what happens, she decides to take matters into her own hands. She was a foreign princess. She has a different idea about what kings and queens can do. For her, the king is above the law. The king is the law. If you want something, you just take it, because who's going to stop you? You're the king, after all. Do you not reign, Ahab, in Israel? That's what she says. Do you now, now reign over Israel? So you can see, there's no fear of God in this woman. Ahab, if you haven't noticed, is a pretty passive king. In the, in the last few chapters, you'll see pretty much everything he does, he does because somebody told him to do it. Ahab does what he's told. Jezebel does what she wants. She's basically running his kingdom without him. She takes his kingdom basically from him. She even takes his name. She writes a letter in his name, signs it with his seal while he's still staring at the wall, not eating food. And what makes this especially evil is that she is going to hide this sin of theft and murder under the appearance of law and religion. So she doesn't just hire the assassin down the road to go and just kill Naboth. She proclaims a fast, a religious fast. And then she has two people, two witnesses, witnesses who will speak against Naboth in accordance with the law. They have to be worthless men because it's a false accusation. Naboth is to be accused of cursing God and the king. And this is revolting, really. Jezebel doesn't care about God at all. Naboth clearly does. And she doesn't want to just take his land. She wants to ruin his reputation publicly. Say, this man cursed God and the king. And then have the whole group of people take him out of the city and stone him to death. That's what happens. Jezebel, not just Jezebel, but the elders and the leaders of the local government participate in it. The false witnesses, they all pretend to uphold the law while they persecute the innocent. And the plan goes as smoothly as anybody could hope. Naboth is at this fast, obediently. He's falsely accused. 
He's dragged outside the city, and he's stoned to death. 2 Kings chapter 9 tells us a little bit more about what happened. God says this, As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. This is the fulfillment of this curse. But we see there that Ahab couldn't just take the land because Naboth was dead, because then it would go on to his sons. So he wiped out Naboth's entire clan off the face of the earth. He killed him and his sons so that no one possessed the land anymore and that he could just step on it like a boat at sea and claim it as his own. And this is especially horrendous, but you see why the punishment is so fitting that God says, I will destroy you and all your sons too. So Ahab has done something very wicked, taken this righteous man, accused him, cursing God and the king. He oppresses him. He wipes out his entire family. And then he just gladly jumps up out of bed, runs over there, and starts figuring out where the cucumbers and the lettuce are going to go. It's wicked. You know, and he's happy all of a sudden. And, you know, why shouldn't he be happy? Because now he's got an extra place for some lettuce. And we read it, we're disgusted by it. And it makes you angry if you hear these things. This, the king of Israel, coveting and bearing false witness, the ninth commandment, stealing and murder, the eighth commandment, the sixth commandment. But brothers and sisters, shouldn't this be a warning to us also to run away from even smaller temptations? Sin is never content with a little. One sin leads to another. When sin is conceived, it brings forth death. Now, an innocent man has been killed. He's become a victim of oppression and corruption. A corrupt king, a corrupt queen, corrupt governors, a manipulated law system. But this is not seen only in the Bible, is it? We've, we've never seen anything like that in the modern world, right? Now, whether here in the United States or, or anywhere else, every, every leader is a sinner. Every follower is a sinner. We're all sinners. And it's common for the human experience that the powerful oppress the weak. God hates it, but we do it. And the rich and the politically power, powerful have oppression down to a science. Not that all the rich and the powerful are evil, for governments are indeed a great blessing from the Lord, and we are to submit to them. But every country and every age has seen corruption, including this one. We see it on smaller scales, too, from the way employee, employers treat their employees and salesmen treat their customers, all the way down to how brothers and sisters treat one another. But God sees all of it. That's one thing we see in this passage. God notices. It was a sneaky plan 
that it seemed that they got away with. But God cares. God saw. God knows exactly what happened. He knows exactly where Ahab is. Have you forgotten that God cares for the poor and the oppressed? That God comes to the defense of the oppressed and the orphans and the widows? He always has. And at this very moment, while Ahab is happily deciding which vegetables go where, Elijah appears. Before he even gets to plant anything in the ground, he turns around and there's the prophet Elijah. God has found him. God's word has found him. And that's what Elijah says, I have found you. What a scary thing for the wicked to hear. You see, none of this has escaped God's attention. I don't have the time to go over the entire message in detail, but it is gruesome. Ahab has swept away Naboth and his sons. Now God will sweep away Ahab and his sons. They will be licked up by dogs or by birds. No one will bury them. And notice how Elijah says this in verse 20. He said, you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Isn't that a scary way to say that? You have sold yourself to evil. Ahab has been sold to sin. But that's what happens. You cannot expect to control sin, for it enslaves. You Every one of you, brothers and sisters, friends, you all serve something or someone. Sin either enslaves you or you serve the Lord. Those are your two choices. There is no independent freedom choice where you can do whatever you want and not be a slave. That is not the way we were made. We are either free under God's rule or we are oppressed, and the wages that you get is death. Now, sin is a cruel master. Isn't it ironic? Ahab wants to steal something. He ends up being owned. He intends to expand his property and loses his whole kingdom. Uh, Adam and Eve, they... They lusted after the fruit. They wanted to be like God. God had placed them over the, over the whole world. And in their sin, they somehow end up obeying an animal. Animals that were supposed to be placed underneath them. You cannot, you cannot overcome this and become gods yourselves. If you rebel against God, you just reduce yourself. That's what happens. And what happened to Ahab? And God, we see here, is serious about justice. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how sneaky, you can never get away with sin. We see that here. God is a God of justice. But what about Naboth? Because he still lost his life. His reputation was ruined. His own, his own neighbors dragged him outside the city, stoned him to death, and his family. He suffered unjustly. What about Naboth? I can't just pass that over. But we serve a God 
who is able to rectify wrongs. And he will. And that is a great hope that we have. Ahab will lose his kingdom, but Naboth gained one. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And Naboth goes from one vineyard into a much greater one. God will restore him to life one day. And he will put right what was wrong. He will make up for all the years that the locusts have eaten. And this passage reminds us, though, nevertheless, that following God in this world doesn't mean that you will escape persecution. It doesn't mean that you won't get sick. It doesn't mean that you'll live forever. We'll all die. We'll all suffer. Everyone who, who longs to live godly in this, in this world will be persecuted. That's what Paul said. Persecution is promised to us. That is our lot in life. All day long, we are considered as sheep destined for slaughter. And yet, in all this, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We can take comfort, too, in the fact that we have a Savior who knows what it's like to suffer unjustly. A greater than Naboth. Would Naboth have even believed it, that one day God himself would come down, be born in a manger, and that the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, would also be falsely accused by two worthless men. That he would also be accused of blaspheming God and the king, that he would also be taken outside of the city and put to death. All of those things happen to the Lord Jesus. You see, we have, and Naboth had a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and our suffering. That doesn't make oppression okay. But God is so powerful and so good that he will make even the worst things turn out for the good of those who love him. And one day, you will see it with your own eyes. And this is a great comfort to all of us who are in Christ. We don't deserve it. If we're honest, we would see that sometimes we're much more like Ahab than Naboth. But there is mercy to be found in Christ if only we flee to him in repentance. For Christ, the only truly innocent man, was put to death so that all who trust him for salvation might be set free. And there on the cross, justice and mercy kiss. There on the cross, justice and mercy are most clearly seen. In this passage, we see justice. We see injustice of man, the justice of God. But we also see God's mercy and you might not really like it. What we want to see is justice for Naboth. Mercy for Naboth. Justice for Ahab. Him be punished. And God, God has mercy on Ahab.
But this is the way God is. And it's tough for us to deal with sometimes. He's more merciful than we are. He takes the most wicked people and he shows his mercy in them. Paul says he was the greatest of sinners, the worst sinner. And yet God showed mercy to him that his perfect patience might be displayed. If there's mercy for him, there's mercy for anybody. That was the message that Paul got to carry out to others. I was the persecutor of God's people. Now he's made me an apostle. There is mercy for you too, to all who come to him. So this is good news for us that God pardons Ahab or that God relents or postpones the judgment that's coming upon Ahab because in it we see very clearly, more powerfully, that God is merciful God also. He is not simply a God who acts justly. He is a God who loves mercy. Verse 25 emphasizes the wickedness of Ahab. It says, There was no king in Israel who sold himself to evil before the Lord like Ahab did. Jezebel's guilty here too, obviously, but the focus is on Ahab. He turned away from the Lord. He worshiped idols just like the people who lived in the land before the Israelites did. He drove other people's hearts away from the Lord. Is there any hope for a man this evil? But when Ahab hears the words of Elijah, he tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, and he humbles himself before the Lord. And God says, look at that. Do you see this, Elijah, how he has humbled himself before me? He's not just telling it to Elijah. He's saying it to you too. It's written down here for you. Do you see this? He has humbled himself and God is merciful. And if you continue reading, you'll see that Ahab doesn't seem to become a Christian at this point. He's still fighting against the Lord every step of the way until he's shot by an arrow and he dies. And the dogs lick up his blood just as was promised. So what is this repentance? It doesn't seem like it's a saving repentance, but it is true humility. It's not just outward because the Lord looks on the heart. Justice will still come, but it will be delayed. So what we see here is that even when someone repents, and it's not sincere, but their humility is sincere, God rushes to show mercy. He rushes to show mercy when we wouldn't be willing to show it. You see, there's no one so sinful that God is not willing to have mercy and save you if only you will repent and put your faith in Christ for salvation. We want justice for others. We want justice to those who oppress us. We want mercy for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, you can't have it both ways. God's a merciful God, and the fact that he's merciful sometimes to our enemies should give us more hope because we don't deserve mercy either. But I I can offer you this. You've seen it with Ahab. 
God is a God who is merciful. He is quick to show mercy. He is slow to anger. He rushes to the prodigal son and throws the best robe, probably his own robe on him, gives him a ring, gives him shoes, restores him. God loves to show mercy, brothers and sisters. If you wonder whether or not God will forgive you, don't wonder any longer. Come to him. He will by no means cast you out. He will have mercy on you and save you. It doesn't matter what you've done. God's mercy is more. God is a God who loves mercy. So humble yourselves before the Lord and repent. For the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So come to him and be saved. Lord, we ask that you would convict us of our sin, but also convince us that you are a God who does justly, and you are a God who loves mercy. Help us, Lord, to come to you that we might receive that mercy. And we thank you again for the Lord Jesus who bore your wrath in our place that we might be saved, that we might be your children. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.